Uh, so lesson seven in this series on fear and anxiety. Uh, last time we, we covered some critical uh, ground discussing the importance of balancing the indicatives in Scripture with the imperatives. And so we kind of discussed what these things were. Um, there, there are those biblical facts, uh, and then there are those uh, biblical commands. And so we use this sort of as a diagram uh, to say how we just sort of describe how we want to balance uh, out these things, uh, the comfort, um, uh, the comforts of Scripture, as well as the call to, to in Scripture to holiness and to purity and faithfulness and obedience. Uh, we said that there are statements in Scripture to be believed, and then there are requirements in Scripture to be obeyed, and that we need to make sure that we keep those things together, that we don't rush to the commands without realizing the importance of those facts to be believed, those things about the scriptures teach us about who we are and about the world and about our Lord and about redemption. We don't want to rush to the commands. At the same time, we don't want to have this view of sanctification that it's somehow just we we learn about all the things that God has done for us and we get excited about that, but it never really translates into any sort of entrustment of our lives into God's hands and, and a determination to be uh, obedient in our Christian lives. Uh, so these two things, these statements to be believed and these requirements in Scripture to be obeyed, are, are inseparable uh, concepts. Uh, they are different concepts, and so you need to be able to distinguish between those two things. Um, but they are both necessary, and then we also talked about that importance of, or the reality that one, one of those must precede the other. In, in other words, the indicative comes first and serves as the ground and the power of the imperative. And so I just want to give you some, so we just kind of go back and, and revisit that just to make sure we're, we're very clear uh, on this issue, but just uh, turn over to Colossians 3. just want to give you a few examples of this, um, and then we'll, we'll move on. Colossians 3. So we're just looking for, if you will, looking for these indicatives, looking for these imperatives. And I think understanding this will, again, it's going to give you fuel for the fight, obviously, in your battle against sin, and unbelief. Um, uh, it's also going to, I think, help you appreciate the structure of these letters and these these books of the Bible. The, 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 the authors and the writers and, and the Lord put these things in a certain order for us. And so we've got to, to see that and, and appreciate it and, and understand the implications of it. So Colossians 3, you'll notice what he says in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved... Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So again, we have some, we have a, some commands here. We're, we're commanded as children of God to put on a heart of compassion and then all of these other things, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. We're to bear with one another in love. We're to forgive. And then he kind of revisits an, an, an indicative in a way by inserting a statement about the Lord forgiving us. So that, again, that's a statement to be believed, right? I mean, we have to believe that we've been forgiven as God's uh, children, and if we truly understand that, then that should motivate us to obey. 
this command that you need to be forgiving. You need to be a forgiving person. So you're to forgive and you're to put on these things, but it's all based upon the indicative, uh, the reality that we have been chosen of God, that we are sanctified and set apart unto God, that we are beloved. And in light of that and the fact that the Lord has forgiven us in Christ, we're to do these things. First uh, Peter chapter 2. Flip over to First Peter chapter 2. See another, another example of this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. This is a a passage we looked at last time. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may become, because of your good good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Then he moves into a section where he's dealing, there's there's an initial command to, to be subject, to be submissive. And then that sort of theme carries on really for, for a, a number of, of uh, paragraphs beyond that. So we have a command to be subject, uh, to be submissive, and then we have, uh, even though it's not in the imperative form, we have some verbs in this, in this uh, verses 11 and 12 that sort of have the force of an imperative, has the, the idea of a command, which is why most, most translations actually translate it in the English as if it were an imperative or a command. Keep your behavior uh, excellent. Abstain from fleshly lust. Those kind of things. Why? Why do we do that? Well, we do that because of what he says back in the in the earlier verses, right? You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are these things. God's called you out of darkness. You belong to Him, and you were not a people of God, but now you have received mercy. So, in light of the fact that you have been called of God and you've received mercy, now you're to do these things. So I'm just saying, it would be wrong for us to jump to, we just need to be submissive, and we just need to abstain from fleshly lust, and we just need to keep our behavior excellent among unbelievers without really understanding the, the, the motivation behind that. It would be equally erroneous to understand who we are in Christ, but then not see the importance of actually being submissive. So we, we would be falling short, right? We would say, well, we belong to God. We're excited about that. We're forgiven. We receive mercy. But then that never moves us to show mercy to others or to have a submissive attitude or a humble disposition or any of those things. So you see these things in Scripture all the time. Uh, one more. Go, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse, beginning in verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of God with idols. And then notice this important statement, for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then notice, there's a chapter break, but it's really just continues here, verse 1 of chapter 7. Therefore, in light of all these things, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So again, you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to be holy. I'm struggling to, to, to be pure. I'm struggling to, to, be, to be separate from, from the world and to, and, and, and to deal with the love of the world in my heart. I'm saying then, then you need to go back to the end of chapter 6 and, and be fueled by the things that are, that are stated there. And so, again, these things are they're, they're, they're different, they're inseparable, and there is an order, right? So the indicatives always precede that, at least in the way that we think about it. So it's not, not to say that you wouldn't have actually in Scripture a command and then an indicative, right? But the indicative, as we think about it, because he could be saying, I want you to do this thing in light of and then give us the indicative, right? But as we think about that, the thing that should come to our mind first is the statement, right? The truth that needs to be embraced and believed that would lead us to such an obedience. So indicatives, then imperatives. Uh, in fact, you can even detect this pattern in, in the Psalms. Uh, I just give you an example here. Um, in fact, here's just some, uh, if, you, if you guys want, somebody mentioned, like, you go, you go through the slides too fast, you don't give us enough time to write. If there's anything you want from this, just send me an email and I'll send you a, uh, uh, something you, you can use for later. I'll just send it to you as a document. Um, but here you have indicative, the indicative of done by God and then moving us to the imperative of do for man. And when we talk about the indicative, again, we're looking at things that tell us something about who God is, what God has done, what God will do, who I am, who I was, or uh, what I have have or have been doing. So there's just some sort of statement generally about those things. Uh, don't try to write. Um, so this is just a snapshot of Psalm 31. And what's interesting is you go through Psalm 31. Again, it doesn't lay out like this chronologically. Okay, so I've got all the verses notated here. But again, you could go through a psalm like this and you could categorically sort of group these statements and verses in this way and kind of interpret the psalm in this way, where the, the psalmist is talking about their circumstances and situation. And so he talks about, he says, I am in distress, verse 9, in need of, of grace. Um, he talks about being a reproach to those who know him, a forgot, forgotten by his own people, a broken vessel, the subject of gossip and slander, surrounded by danger and persecuted. So just a description about who he is and what he's going through. And then he makes statements, I have, and these are some things that he's done, and he puts them in the psalm. I have taken refuge in the Lord. I have committed my life into his hands. I've hated idolaters, trusted in the Lord, called upon God, doubted God at times, he says in verse 22, cried out to the Lord. And then along the way, he sprinkles in these statements about God. God is righteous. He is a rock of strength, a stronghold, my rock, my fortress, my strength, the God of truth. He is loving. He is in control of all of our days and good. And then he references things that God has accomplished and done. 
He has ransomed me. He has seen my affliction. All these are all these are indicatives. Is my point? God has ransomed me. Ransomed me. He's seen my affliction. He has known the trouble of my heart. He has not given me over to the enemy. He has set my feet in a large place. Verse eight. Stored up goodness to be dispensed to his children at the right moment. Verse nineteen. Hidden and protected his people. Displayed his kindness and heard his cry. And then even some promises. Statements of promise, God will lead me, guide me, pull me out of the traps that others have set for me, preserve, he will preserve the faithful and pay back the proud. Well, if you, you could group all that and sort of as indicatives, and then there are these other things where along the way David says, these are things I do or will do. So this is sort of his resolve to live a certain way. He's explaining why he's doing what he's doing, or he's resolving to, as he moves forward, to live in a certain way. So he says, I do or I will ask for deliverance and these things, help, grace, vindication. I will rejoice. I will be glad. I will extol God for his goodness. I will bless the Lord for his kindness and answering prayer. I will love the Lord. I will take strength and courage and wait and hope in the Lord. So I'm just saying it's not always uh, that clear when you're reading through a psalm because of this, because of the way it's kind of all woven together. But even in the Psalms, there's this pattern in a lot of them where you see this, the indicatives motivating the psalmist to this place of commitment and resolve. And the thing is, this, this psalm would be incomplete, really, if you didn't have the last column on the right. <laughs> it would just be saying, God's done all these things, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and then, but then there's no sort of obedience, right? There, there's no decision made, and, and yet the psalmist wants us to know where he stands. He wants us to know where he's headed. He wants us to know what his loyalties are, but he doesn't just give us that. He wants us to know everything that led up to that, right? He wants us to know about his circumstances and what he's done and who he is and what God has done and what he's like and what he promises to do. So I just encourage you to think, even as you're reading through the, the psalms or other passages that may not be as clear as a Colossians 3, right, 12 to 14, where it's very easy to, to, to point those things out, to even when you go and study other places, to think um, in those terms. That might really, really, really be helpful. Now, what, what, does, that, what does that have to do with, with fear? Well, I'm just saying, again, it's easy for us to rush to the commands when we're thinking about how to deal with fear and anxiety. Uh, it's easy to rush to the... Be anxious for nothing, right? In Philippians 4, that's a command. Be anxious for nothing. But before he says be anxious for nothing, he says the Lord is near. <laughs> well, that's important, right? If you don't believe that the Lord is near, and it can be, that could be interpreted in two ways. You could say that the nearness of God is a comforting thing, right? And the nearness of God can be a threatening thing, <laughs> right? So it, it, there's a sense in which God is near as a judge, and there's a sense in which, which God is near... Uh, as, a, as a deliverer and a savior and a, and a compassionate God. And so we have to take all of that, I think, into consideration. When we cast our cares on the Lord and when we go to the Lord in prayer, we have to understand the attributes of God or else we pray but don't really understand why we're praying. So we get fearful, we pray, but a lot of people that pray when they're fearful don't really understand how that prayer is supposed to help them. Right, So they're just praying, and they're like, well, I'm fearful all the time. What do you do? Well, I pray all the time. But, but they're not actually overcoming anxiety and fear. And so they're, they're missing something. And, and what, I'm, what I'm suggesting is that 
I think a lot of times when you see a pattern like that in someone's life, it's because they don't understand the indicatives. Make sense? So it's like they, they've rushed to the pray and they've rushed to the rejoice and they've rushed to the dwell on these things, but they're not thinking about what Paul has said in Philippians 1, 2, and 3 <laughs> that lead him to the place where he is telling the church to, to pray and to not be anxious with thanksgiving, make, the, make their requests known, to dwell on these things, to practice these things, and ultimately he ends with a section on contentment. We just want the contentment part, right? We just want to be able to handle life and circumstances and not, not be in, in an uproar and, and, and our life turned upside down, but it's like, but we got to back up and think about these indicatives if we're going to have, I think, success that remains. You might have some short-term success dealing with these things, but not really a pattern of victory, I think, in your life if you don't, don't understand this, um, this dynamic. So... So that's really, a, this is just another example uh, of that dynamic with the indicative and the imperative. And again, we need, we need both of these. Uh, we also emphasized the point last time that true faith always yields to both things. So true faith yields to both indicatives and imperatives. So just being careful not to separate those things. And then we talked about some things we need to believe at the very outset. These three key truths, I've got them up here, um, that we have to believe that there is a battle. We've got to understand that. This is the the appetites of the flesh, uh, and the, the Spirit of God. We've got to know that, that, that the greatest threat in our lives is not the world. It's not what's out there, the circumstances or the people in your life or your environment or your past, or whatever, but it's your own appetites. That's, that's the greatest threat to your soul is your own sinful appetites. And so you've got to understand that. You've got to know that the, the battle is real, um, D. Edmund Hebert says this. He's talking about this 1 Peter 2 passage about abstaining from fleshly lusts. He says, These lusts constitute an army of soldiers engaged in constant warfare against the soul aimed at capturing the believer and making him useless to God. And so that's why Peter urges us to stay, abstain from them, um, to, to distance. The word there is as a word for distancing yourself from those things because they are the enemies of sanctification. Secondly, we said you have to believe that you do not have to sin. This is huge. I think a lot of people fail again at the very beginning because they honestly don't believe by faith what the scriptures say. You are free from the mastery of sin. Romans 6, Galatians 5:16. I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Right? So you have to you have to know that you have the resources, you have the grace, you have the, the, the power of the Spirit, the enabling of the Spirit in your life to say no to sin in, of any kind, but in this case, especially with the, the, the sins of, of um, fear and, and worry. So you have everything you need for a godly life. Uh, and we mentioned this powerful truth. You begin your Christian life with everything. So the task for you now as a believer is to grow into what you already have and where you already are. So as Christians, we're not waiting for the resources. <laughs> we have the resources. That's why when the, when, when the um, scriptures speak about the blessings that we have in Christ, those, those very things that we need to grow in our, in our faith, it speaks of them in the past tense, right? So you, you have all things pertaining to life and godliness. Colossians, you are complete in Christ, 
right? I mean, you're already complete. You're not trying to be complete. You're already complete in Christ. When you go to Ephesians 1, right, you have been blessed in the heavenlies, right? This is something that's already taken place. And so I wanted to read this quote. Uh, I mentioned it um, two weeks ago, but did, we just were short on time. But this is out of a book called True Devotion. Uh, this, again, as I mentioned, is a book that we, uh, our elder board is, is going through uh, right now. But he says this on page 39, and he's talking about this, this principle. He says, The greatest breakthrough we experience as Christians is what happens at the very beginning when we are given new birth, raised from the dead to new life, adopted into God's family, and so on. As a result, progress in the Christian life is the process of becoming what we are already. This is because the decisive breakthrough is behind us, not ahead of us. The old has gone, the new is here. In the New Testament, this means that Christian growth is not the quest for some gift or, ch- or change or experience that we lack and must have. Instead, it is the progressive taking hold of, entering into, and expressing what we are and have already, and have already as a result of God's saving grace. Think for a moment of the process of sanctification, that is, the growing in and through which we become holy people. In the New Testament, we read such exhortations as, "...make every effort to be holy." Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It is easy to get a false impression from such verses taken in isolation. It sounds as though we begin by being very unholy and that by persistent effort we gradually become holier and holier. But why isn't this right? The reason is this. Before we get to Hebrews twelve fourteen, we have already been told that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of Christ once for all. So holiness is not a distant goal, it is our starting point. This means that sanctification is not the process of progressively acquiring what we do not have, rather it is the process of appropriating and growing into what we have from the beginning of our life in Christ. Out of the riches of His grace, God gives us what He, finds, what he wants to find in us. He makes us what He wants us to be. As a result, we grow by becoming what we are Our state is progressively conformed to our status. As we grow, our condition comes to match our position. So again, it's it's you 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 may think this way, and I and I counsel with a lot of people that have that sort of idea that that they're and again they're they're going they're going to the commands. They're seeing this 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 exhortation to charge ahead and to strive for this and to pursue this and to flee that. And they're, they're they're seeing all that. I'm saying. That's not wrong, right? You just got to make sure that you understand the indicatives, right? You've got to understand all those things that the writers of Scripture have said have already occurred. And one of the most obvious is that we are commanded to be holy, which is the word, is sort of a variation of the word for sanctification. So we are commanded to be holy multiple times in the Scriptures, and yet the Scriptures in several places tell us that from the very beginning of our Christian lives that we have been sanctified, past tense. You've already been set apart for God. (laughs) You've already been made positionally holy in Christ and because of Christ's righteousness. That then becomes the reason why now you want to every day pursue holiness in practice, right? And so, again, you're appropriating those realities, it's not that you're just sitting back and relaxing. It does take effort. It does take 
a diligence. It takes, as the Puritans used to call, holy sweat, right? You need some holy sweat in your, if you're going to grow into Christ's likeness, but you're always operating from these, these indicatives, these, these realities of Scripture. So you have the Spirit, the resources, the Word, the mind of Christ, resurrection power. You don't have to yield to the flesh. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to fear or fret. And then finally, we said you must believe that you are not passive in the sanctification process. Um, that if you are saved, God is working in you, but he is working in you in order that you may work it out. So it's all by his power and enabling, but you are commanded to do the work and make the effort, believing his word and yielding to his commands. So you have to know how the Holy Spirit works through your spiritual efforts, right? Efforts to stand your ground in faithfulness, efforts to understand and believe and appropriate biblical truth and to display the character of God and to be conformed to the love and holiness of Christ. So all, all these things, folks, these are all things you need to know at the very beginning, which is why when I meet with people for counseling, that what they want is they want me to tell them in the first session, how do I get rid of fear, right? How do, we, how, do we, how do I get rid of anxiety? And they're kind of scratching their head when I say, so let's look at the gospel. They're like, well, well I'm already saved. Like that, in their minds, when they think of the God, when you say gospel, they're thinking, yeah, that's that thing I believed, right? Five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so you're going there and you're, you're trying to cover that ground. Do you really understand what took place in your life? I mean, do you really understand the, the transformation that took place? Do you really understand that you went from darkness to light? Do you really understand you went from condemned to, to free, right? Liberated, vindicated because of Christ. Do you, if you don't understand all that, then I'm not doing you a favor by rushing to the, here's the two or three things you need to do this week to get rid of anxiety, Right? So people will do this. They'll kind of scratch their head and like, why are we doing this? I understand this. And we're like, well, just be patient. Let's go through this. Let's just make sure that we're talking about the same thing. We're using the same terms. And usually after three or four meetings, they're connecting the dots. It's almost as if sometimes by the time you get to this sort of, here's the practical things you need to be doing, they've already figured out a lot of it, right? Because they're realizing that there was this problem back here, right? That the, that that foundational element was was not there. Uh, I've got a, I've got a pastor I'm counseling. I started counseling this week with his wife, and and there's all these issues and turmoil going on in in their lives. And we're we're talking about the gospel. <laughs> that guy's going to be preaching the gospel hopefully this morning right across town. So he's looking at me like, you know, okay, all right, well there you go. So what's the gospel? Let's talk about the gospel. And and the, and, and I'm just saying. If they're not showing mercy to each other in their marriage, they don't understand something about the gospel. So let's just, just call it what it is, right? Let's, it's, it it could, could just be a flat-out just determination. They're not going to obey God, right? But I doubt that it's that, that, it's that way. My, my, my concern is that there's some confusion about what the gospel is. And when I poked there with her, her with the wife, she actually, when I, when I kind of started down that road, she said, I've thought about this before, and I wonder if I'm even saved. And this guy's been in ministry for years. He went to seminary, got an MDiv with a specialty in biblical counseling, and now we're 
right? One church, another church, now they're in this church. It's been about six years, married for 15 years, and their marriage is in total chaos, right? And I'm just saying, don't rush past the indicatives. <laughs> don't rush past these things or else you'll have, again, it'll, it'll be a fix. It's just going to be a short-term fix, right? You're going you're gonna to get over some immediate fear and anxiety, but then it's probably going to come back and it's going to come back with a vengeance. So these are important things. Spirit-enabled sanctification, that's what we're talking about. Now, I want to start with, I want to get to this practical stuff. We're going to start down this list. We got to say, I mentioned there's a number of things. We'll, have to, we'll just get going in this and have to pick up next time. But I do want to take what time we have left to give you some practical steps to overcoming fear. Uh, not necessarily in chronological order, but I've tried to put them in a way that, uh, sort of organize them in a way that makes sense. So we're just going to call this some critical components in the process of change when it comes to dealing with fear and anxiety, and uh, maybe cover three of these things um, this morning. And again, I, I want you to think about these things. I don't want you to be distracted by just feeling feel like you have to <clears throat> jot all these things down real quick and write them down. I want you to think about these, these points and about some of the questions that I've got, I've got here. So the first one is you must identify your fears and how you have handled them in the past. You must identify your fears and how you have handled them in the past. So again, I talk to a lot of people about these issues, and interestingly, sometimes when you start talking about anxiety and fear, people don't always even know what, what they're worrying about, right? They're fearful, but they haven't even put their finger on exactly what it is that, caught, that, that they're fearful about, and they haven't spent a lot of time sort of reflecting on that, how it got to that place, right? And even in a given situation, kind of how, how this thing unfolds, right? What are the circumstances around it? And how have they responded in, in, in a given situation? So we're, we're asking here sort of what, what exactly is it that you fear? Uh, and there is a wide range of things, right? So these are just some questions I would ask uh, or at least be entertaining in my own mind as I'm meeting with people. Do, do you fear a particular situation? Um, is, is, it, is it a fear of disaster or a bad experience? Do you fear the consequences of past sin or a past sin being exposed? Right? We've, we've seen some of these things, right, in, our, in, in, the, in the news, right? We're, we're just talking about, I mean, not to say somebody did this or didn't do that. I'm just saying these are kind of the general discussions. Is, is, is somebody haunted by their past, right? Are, are there people that are doing things that, that if people just observe their life they would see the fear and they would see the anxiety, but they would never think about the possibility that all of these behaviors could be going back to the root of the fact that they have not cleared their conscience. They are living with a guilty conscience, and these anxieties and fears are flowing out of that. And so that's a good thing to consider, right? Is it something, are we, are we experiencing the effects of past sin, and that's making us fearful or anxious, or maybe it's something that nobody knows about, which we're fearful could be, uh, could be exposed. Do you have a fear of being overcome? Do you have a fear of eternal judgment? Do you fear death or meeting the Lord? Do you fear rejection from others? If so, list their names, right? Because even that, people say, well, yeah, I'm fearful of sort of, they'll, they'll just say people or a certain group of people, but it's like, no, I want you to, I mean, who? I want to know who, because People don't sin in generalities, 
right? Their sin is very specific and concrete. So getting them to think about who is it that you're afraid of, right? So getting a little bit more specific about that. Do you fear failure? Uh, What kind of failure or in what area? Do you fear the future or some future event that is, that is certain? So it's something that you're fearful of, that you're pretty much, you know it's going to happen, uh, fairly sure it's going to happen. Or sometimes you fear the future and it's an issue where it's perhaps just an unknown. So it is just more of like, you, it, it, there's a, a one in a thousand chance it might happen, but probably not. And yet you're still gripped by that, by that fearful feeling. Do you fear not being able to complete a task successfully? Do you fear physical problems or getting sick? Uh, do you fear uh, being alone? What, whatever it is, you've got to at least start with trying to put your finger on, on the fear itself. What are you afraid of? So you try to identify what it is that you value uh, or, or that you might be afraid of losing. That's maybe a good way to think about this. Are you afraid of losing your health? Are you afraid of losing possessions or relationships, a feeling of security, your reputation, a sense of peace, your time, uh, or some form of success? And again, these things aren't, uh, many of these things can, can be good. I mean, they're not like, you know, having peace in your life is not a bad thing. Uh, having success in your business is not a bad thing, but it's very possible that one or more of these things have become too important to you. So, again, possessions and relationships and all that stuff, that's good stuff. But if you have made an idol of those things and you're clinging too tightly to those things, that could be, that could be causing uh, these, these, uh, this fear and anxiety. Uh, one easy way to learn if some possession or desire has become too valuable is to ask yourself, if you had blank, just fill in the blank, if you had blank in heaven but didn't have Jesus, would you still be happy to be there? I'll use that with, 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 with young people sometimes, just getting them to think about, you know, what are they, what, where's their heart? What, what are they attaching themselves to? What are they really depending on and trusting and what brings them joy? Those types of things. So what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of not getting that you want or that you think you need or deserve? Or what are you afraid of losing that you already have? It's usually one of those two things. You're fear, fearful that you're not going to get something that you really want or you think you need or you already have something and you're afraid you're going to lose it. And when, when, it starts to be th- when that thing begins to be threatened, then you become fearful, right? When you think that it's going to be something that, that is, is taken from you. Uh, and how have you handled your fear in the past? And so, again, thinking about what, what's, your, what's your pattern in these things. Do you run? Do you hide? Do you withdraw? Do you fight? Do you cower? Do you attack? Do you try to avoid certain people or situations? Do you try to control everything? Uh, do you lie? Some people, that's their, that's their reaction. When they're fearful, they, they, they just, they'll say things that are not true. They'll exaggerate things. And then the next thing you know, I mean, it's, they get into a pattern of that, and, and they're, they're just, I mean, they, they don't know what's true anymore. I mean, they have lied so repeatedly, so habitually, that they don't even know what is up and what is, what is down, what is right and what is wrong. Uh, do you pray uh, when you're fearful? And if so, why do you pray? Because, again, some people pray but don't understand why prayer should help them. Uh, do you seek wise counsel, or do you tend to try to handle things on your own? Do you excuse your fear? 
uh, or do you look for distractions? Which, again, could be, could be helpful, uh, but sometimes the thing that is used as a distraction can become an object of misplaced comfort. So it's like you're fearful, and then you, you, you think, okay, I've got to get out of this scenario, situation, and you turn to something, some sort of distraction that kind of gets your mind off them. I'm saying that's not inherently wrong. I'm just saying that if you do that, you have to still then question the thing that you're turning to, right? Is that decision to turn to that thing in that temporary moment, is that something that is pointing you in the direction of trusting Christ and the gospel and the resources of God? Or is that something that is actually going to make it more difficult for you to trust the Lord? Right? Because now you're relying on that distraction to be the thing that calms you down, not the Lord himself. Right? So again, just some, just some questions to, uh, to, to consider, to ask yourself. Or the, again, these things are, I mean, you can use, if you're in discipleship relationships or parenting or whatever, these are good questions to draw out of people what's in their hearts. You know, because again, they don't often even think about these these kinds of things. They just want the immediate relief. Uh, next, you must ask yourself questions that get at at the heart issues. Right? Some good X-ray questions. Okay, is what you are afraid of real or imagined? Are you thinking about things that are true and real, or things that are imagined? Is fear keeping you from accomplishing your daily responsibilities? But one of the questions I get is, well, how do I know if it's sinful fear? <laughs> so it's like, I mean, because we've talked about there are good forms of fear, right? I mean, if fear keeps you from stepping out in front of traffic, that's a good thing, right? If fear motivates you to, to go to the doctor and get a checkup, if you haven't had a checkup in the last eight years, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We know that fearing the Lord is not a bad thing, right? So I'm just saying there are forms of fear that aren't inherently sinful. And the question comes sometimes, about how do I know? One of the ways to discern that is to say, is it keeping you from your God-given responsibilities? In other words, is, if the fear is causing you to be unfaithful in any of those ways, then, then it's a problem. Right, So if fear is causing you to not love your kids, if fear is causing you to not serve your spouse, if fear is causing you to not share your faith, if it, whatever those things are that we are, we're clear commands, right? We're supposed to love our, our spouses and our families and love other believers and, and share the word of God. And so if fear is keeping us from a very clear responsibility, then it's, it's in that category of sinful fear. So that's an important question. Are you living according to how you feel? Right? We're talking about, again, feelings are important. They play a role, but they're not, we don't want to be driven by them. Uh, what are you focus on, focusing on right now? Uh, do you understand that your thoughts are contributing to how you feel? Is escaping going to solve your problems for those that, that tend to want to run, run and, and hide and get away from the, the person or the situation? This is the one, is a really good one. How does God fit into this picture? <laughs> or sometimes we ask the question, where is God in all of this? And the reason we have to ask that sometimes is because people will spend hours and hours and hours of your time telling you about all the things in their life that they're afraid of and all the circumstances and the details and all the what-ifs and go for hours and not mention God. And yet they claim to be Christians. (laughs) So sometimes you have to say, okay, we've just spent the last hour. I mean, I've given you a lot of time to talk about your situation. And I'm just, it's, it's interesting to me that we just spent an entire hour talking about fear and anxiety and your life and you not one time mention the Lord, right? So it's just a good question. Where is God? Where is God in all of this? 
What words would you use to describe God? Do you believe that God is aware of your problem? Do you believe that God is actively involved in your circumstance? Do you believe that God cares about how you feel? What are you thinking about instead of God's character? Right? You think about the Psalm 34. That I know some of you might be doing the, the inscribed verses. We've been memorizing that, working on that together. Uh, I'm not going to try to quote it because I'm <laughs> I, do, I do I do it in New American Standard. So if I did it, you'd be like, he doesn't know it, you know, because everybody else is doing ESV. They're like, yeah, he botched that. Yeah, and, you know, like, he got all those words mixed up. And I'm like, no, that was New American Standard. So, but Psalm 34. I mean, I'm just saying, folks, if you're struggling with fear, Psalm 34 is a good psalm. I mean, David talks about these kinds of things. He talks about his view of God. He talks about what he thinks, how he's thinking about this situation, and specifically mentions that God delivers him out or from all of his fears. I think that's verse 4. So if you're fearful, Psalm 34 is a great passage. And then interestingly, we'll come back to this next week. You know what the antidote that David provides in Psalm 34 for fear when he says God delivered me? From my fears, you know what he goes on to mention three different times in the psalm after that? The fear of the Lord. That's the antidote. The antidote for fear is the fear of the Lord. Because if you fear the Lord, there's nothing else to fear. Right? So, again, your view of God, the importance of these indicatives, all that stuff, so, so critical. All right, one more. Uh, You must view fear as a signal that may be pointing to heart Problems Again, going back to what we said about emotion and how emotions function, think, emote, act. You, for those of you who've been, does that ring a bell? We talked about that process, thinking, emoting, and then acting, right? And what did we say? We said thoughts are the initiators, emotions are the indicators, okay? Thoughts are the initiators, emotions are the indicators. What that means is that you and I can evaluate our emotions and discover something about what is going on in our hearts. What we think, what we believe, what we desire, our interests and our values. In other words, your fears say something about you. Your fears say something about you. Fear reveals, right? right? And what do your fears reveal? They reveal things about what you want, about your expectations, about what you love and what you value. They, they indicate to us what, what we have as our sort of just worldview, our way of, of viewing life. Uh, what about our view of God, about our view of, of ourselves, right? A lot of those things come to the surface. If we'll just take the time to, to trace back these things, right? So you need to listen to what your fear is saying, Okay, fear may be pointing to a spiritual heart problem or problems. What does your fear say about how you've been interpreting your life and circumstances? Uh, About what you have been thinking about or turning over in your mind? What you've been telling yourself? Again, the psalmist would do this. He would talk to his own soul. Right? Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? It's like we, we have this sort of an in, inner, in, in the inner man, it's as if we have this conversation. Right? We're telling ourselves things. We're you know, sometimes counseling ourselves, but not always in a helpful way. And so what are those things that we're telling ourselves? Uh, what is it that you may have been demanding? Who or what are you worshiping? Who or what uh, is it that you might be clinging to other uh, or more than God? What has captured your heart, your mind, your affections? more than Christ, and this, 
What does your fear say about what you want more, the gifts or the giver? And that's really where the fear of the Lord helps us. Because we can sometimes, we say we love God and don't realize that the, we love God because of all the good things that God does <laughs> right for us. And we don't, we don't, under, we don't realize that we're, we're beginning to, to sort of conditionally love God because of these blessings that He's given to us. And what the fear of the Lord does, and I've said this before, the fear of the Lord balances out our love for God. It's actually, the fear of the Lord is what kind of keeps us from drifting in our love for God and turning that into just loving God for the goodies, right? Just loving God for the, for the, for the gifts of life. The fear of the Lord makes us think about the fact that God is worthy of our praise and that we should love Him regardless of whether or not we get those blessings. So that's why I think the Scriptures put so much emphasis on, on the fear of the Lord. So all good questions. All good questions to consider uh, to begin helping you to unearth what's, what's really going on to sort of begin to diagnose what the real problem is because... And we heard this at the counseling conference last week uh, in, a, in a variety of ways. <laughs> if the diagnosis is wrong, the prescription will be off as well, right? So if you put your finger on the wrong thing and you, you say, well, this is the diagnosis, this is the real, this is the problem. <laughs> well, then you're going to craft the solution around that, right? And sometimes I think we're just, we're aiming at the wrong thing, right? We haven't really put our finger on the heart issues we haven't really taken the time to think about these kind of x-ray questions. And if we rush past that, again, we'll come up with some superficial thing. We'll rush to the world's solutions about these things. We'll rush to some sort of temporary uh, Band-Aid. But then we'll be right back in this. It's just a matter of time. So we've got to get the diagnosis right if we're going to prescribe the right kind of, of help. So we'll stop there uh, for this morning. We'll pick up next week with this list. We'll try to wrap up this, this particular discussion on fear. And then we'll spend one more Sunday, I think, looking at anxiety and worry, uh, sort of the, the kissing cousin, if you will, of fear. Again, let me just encourage you, Psalm 34 uh, be a good one uh, if you're looking to, to get into the Scriptures and, and meditate on passages that will be helpful in this area. Uh, we've got one right in front of our face right now with, uh, with these inscribed verses. So I challenge you to, to jump on board with that if, uh, if you haven't already. All right, folks, thank you for your time.